The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome, Welcome. to Data Welcome. Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Oh, I'm so excited for this talk. I have Vivek Baskaran, who is the founder and CEO of Question Pro, joining me today. Welcome, Vivek. Hi, Zima. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm just living the COVID life. Living the COVID life. What does that mean? What does the COVID life mean? COVID life means wake up, don't take a shower, get on Zoom meetings, maybe go for a run, then have lunch on your desk, and then, you know, just hang out with your kids and then do more Zoom meetings and go back to sleep. It all blends together, doesn't it? Absolutely. Everybody's done that for almost two months now. Yep. And for the foreseeable future, it seems like. So Vivek, tell me about Question Pro. What does your company do? And give us a little story about how you came about founding the company. Absolutely. So I'll start off with Question Pro itself. So we are a survey platform. We're an experience management platform. We start off as a survey platform. We still kind of do surveys, compete with SurveyMonkey, SurveyGizmo, and everybody else in between. And over the last couple of years, we've kind of obviously gone up market. We see we have three different you know, areas or you know, components to our business. Number one is consumer insights and market research. We sell into you know, market researchers. And typically, we're selling into corporate researchers, then consulting firms, or then agencies. And second one is customer experience. We are selling, again, directly into companies over there, obviously, we compete with Qualtrics, Medallia, on the top end, in the middle, and the bottom end, there's, you know, InMoment, Allegiance, a whole bunch of guys are there on that space. And the third component to our business is, again, surveys where to orient towards employees, and then we have a separate product line there. So if you think there's a common thread across all of them, obviously, they're, you know, we start off as a survey platform, and then we've kind of expanded into kind of offering that tool set, and then we've identified three different kind of buyer patterns, and we attack all those three markets with three different product lines within the ecosystem. So that's kind of about the company itself. My personal background, I guess how did I stumble into the company, I guess, is originally I'm from India and grew up in India, then left India. I went to Russia right after high school. So yeah, I didn't get into any of the IITs. If you know the IITs, they are kind of the premier institutions in India, the engineering school. I was into computer science. I was into hacking and computer programming and stuff like that. Even uh, pretty earlier on, my dad got a computer back from his work. This is the early 90s. And I used to like use building board systems and all kinds of shit, just you know, screwing around at home. And I really wanted to get into computer science. But in India, like, you know, computer science is a very coveted kind of spot, if you will, right? So you have to be in the top, frankly, you have to be in the top 1% or less than that in India to even remotely get into that. Clearly, I was not. <laughs> so I ended up, and I was pretty demoralized and dejected. I said, like, oh my God, my life's over. I'm not going to do it. But then, you know, just some random opportunity came up and said, like, all right, you can go to Russia and do this. Pretty bad idea, but I actually did it. Where did you go in Russia? What city? In, in Moscow, actually. So in Moscow. In Moscow. Okay. Yeah, I, I lived there between 95 to 97. So not really, really the bad times, but kind of right after the bad times, I would argue. So it's like, it was not really bad for us, but it was kind of, you know, kind of shitty. And then I kind of obviously knew I had to get out of there. 
I ended up in uh, Provo, Utah, BYU. BYU is, a, as you know, is a Mormon school in Provo, Utah. And I landed there, finished off my computer science there. And then I landed up in Seattle and I started the company. I started Question Pro in 2005. So that's kind of my story in terms of how I kind of kicked into Question Pro. And tell me, you have completely bootstrapped your company or have you taken outside investment? No, I, I, was, I was not smart enough to take money from, you know, people. So I was like, you know, I just built the first version of the tool, sold it, and then built more and sold it. And then you know, I don't look back since then. We've not raised any money so far. Good for you. So I don't have a boss, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can say whatever you want and do whatever you want. Exactly. Tell me a little bit about bootstrapping, your experience and kind of, you know, I think a lot of people... At the stage of where your company is now, I'm sure a lot of people admire what you've done and look at you and say, wow, you're so, and I don't like when people say this, you're so lucky, but it's not really luck. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears you put into it. So just describe those early days for me. Absolutely. I mean, I I would say, I would definitely say lucky too. I think, you know, my background. Yeah, that's fair. uh, My background is like, look, we got super lucky in the sense, like when I built Question Pro, the first iteration of it was 2005. The word SEO was not even coined, right? So it was like, you know, so I was, you know, my background, like I said earlier on, is in computer science, computer engineering. So I built the platform and I said like, okay, now, and literally I'm like green. Like I've never done anything in my life. I'm just, you know, software geek, hacker kind of guy. So, okay, I'm going to actually, right? And I'm like, what does marketing mean? And I'm like hanging out with my buddies. I'm like, dude, I built this tool. I got to sell it. And then something struck. I'm like, okay, like if you're number one on Google, people are going to buy this shit. That's it, right? I'm like, okay. Okay, all I have to do, then I some, like work backwards against that and say like, okay, all I have to do is to become number one on Google. Oh, that's easy, right? Back then, first of all, back then was money. Right, back then, yeah. More importantly, most people don't understand this, but SEO is actually a very deeply analytical exercise. It's not a creative exercise, if you think about it, right? Most people put SEO under marketing, but I actually think it's actually the wrong thing to do. Like if you put SEO under marketing and marketing in general, because all brand marketing, messaging, conversations, you know, that's kind of the guys who run marketing typically, right? Uh, Of course, marketing has evolved over time. Now there's marketing analytics that are kind of, you know, growth hackers, data geeks that run marketing. Uh, They don't run marketing, but they're part of marketing. But back in the day, like most people like, oh, SEO is something, you know, we should put under marketing. But realistically, if you think about it, SEO should really be under engineering. SEO should be an analytical exercise, right? And so I happen to be, obviously an engineer. So I like, I looked at it and said, like, well, getting to number one on Google is actually not that complicated if you are have the mindset of a kind of trial experiment kind of model, which is what all scientists, engineers are kind of, you know, hardwired to do is like try five, figure out which ones work, then try again five things, and then eventually you'll get the right thing. So so going back to your question, Seema, the, the, my lucky break was really, we got to number one on a lot of terms. And so that's kind of lucky break number one. So we got traffic inbound, we start selling, and then we started making money. And then again, the other thing that I don't think people still realize, but all the bigger guys have already realized is like the, the business itself is intrinsically extremely viral. If you think about it, like it's viral, you said. Yes, it has a viral index. It's one of the few B2B platforms, like, you know, has a viral index. So every survey that goes out has powered by question point. And same thing to do with Qualtrics, survey monkey survey, gives everybody. All of us have figured this out. Right. And so we all know clearly, like, I mean, some people figure it out faster than the others. You know, we figured it out really early. And I, I kind of analyze this and say, like, oh my God, uh, you know, if I get a customer that sends out a survey to a million people, it's actually a good thing, you know, because. And if you think about it, surveys in general, you have to send it out. You can't, I mean, I don't know what kind of like CRM, for example. I don't know what CRM tool you use, but I definitely know what survey tool you use. By the fact of, for you to gain value out of my product, you have to send it out either to your employees or to your customers, 
straight up. That's it, right? And so that's a, it's one of the fewer things in B2B. It's like a landing page, you know, you know, a good analogy would be email marketing. If you look at console contact and all these guys, they all grew rapidly. And that's why going back to your point about bootstrapping, you could bootstrap a business over here because you don't need a ton of money to do marketing. Realistically. You need, you, know, you need to get started and you can sustain that operation. And your kind of front end of the funnel is getting filled by the middle versus by your operations, by your customers effectively. And that's why I think we got lucky from a product kind of market fit perspective. And then on the SEO perspective, you know, if I was, so I'm really bad at creative shit, but I'm definitely reasonably good at kind of, you know, engineering analytics. So that worked out to my favor when I was starting off the company. And so once we started making money and then we were like, ah, yeah, fuck it. We're just going to make more money and call it good. And, and, and <laughs> that's it. You know, that's what we did. I think luck presents itself through hard work. So the harder you work, the more breaks you could potentially open up for yourself versus it's just pure luck without the hard work. Just to kind of clarify. And clearly, we all work our asses off. And from my perspective, Tima, I mean, I love what I do even today. I've been at it for quite a while now, clearly. And even today, I have a great team. And, you know, I wake up in the morning, like I said, living the COVID life and I do what I feel like doing. We're, we're, like we talked about earlier, I'm launching a podcast on my own. I'm coming up with new product ideas and we're doing some innovative work in the NPS side, all kinds of stuff. So I think the, you know, to me, like flexibility of coming up with new ideas and executing on them. I mean, to me, like obviously execution is almost everything. Like, you know, coming up with ideas is okay, good. I mean, everybody can, you know, get drunk, get high and come up with ideas. But the next day morning, you can wake up, drink your coffee and get shit done. That's probably more than the idea itself. That's funny. And recently you just moved from California to Austin, Texas, right? You moved your business down to Austin? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not that it matters now, but like, you know, I personally moved uh, towards, the, towards the beginning of this year, but I moved the company a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. So we, we were in the Bay Area, we were in San Francisco and, you know, that was, you know, for a bootstrap company hanging out in San Francisco is probably a bad idea to begin with. And I was facing, you know, we were not able to, and for all the obvious reasons, you know, we could not get talent at a reasonable price tag. And we were, people looked at us and said like, well, we've never seen you on TechCrunch, so you must be down. I'm all right, fine, true. I've never been on TechCrunch, so that doesn't mean anything. But again, attracting talent was tough. And then, uh, so yeah, I mean, so we decided to get out of the Bay Area. And we, we are from Seattle. I, I lived about 10 years in Seattle. I want to go back to Seattle. And then, so we decided kind of, you know, we decided to come to Austin. So yeah, we've been, I've been in Austin for the last five months now, six months, I guess, the beginning of this year, six months now. So obviously last three months, you know, sitting in my house in Austin, but you know, two months before that, I was kind of, you know, you know so I'm not, so I don't know enough about Austin and obviously it's a different experience, you know, pre-COVID, uh, it would be a different experience. And so that's kind of at least my experience so far in Austin. So don't ask me much about Austin. I actually don't know enough about Austin. I won't ask you much about Austin. I understand. I just wanted to bring it up from the perspective of moving down to Austin from the perspective of potentially gaining access to talent that might be more affordable and just a different culture towards tech, you know, if you're not in tech. Yeah, and scaling. And we wanted to build out a bigger sales. The bigger sales and customer and go-to-market functions have to, have to be built out. And we kind of like, we have a big office in India. We actually do a lot of sales out of India too. So we have a global 24-7 sales operation out of India that runs. And then we, we create these, what we call in-market sales teams. So we have an office in Germany, Dubai, here. And so these are kind of our, you know, obviously our enterprise sales teams, effectively, that run in-market. And then we have a commercial sales team that runs out of, that, that, that runs 24-7 out of India. So that's how we've structured the business so far. I think people would be so surprised to hear that a huge part of your sales functions in India. That's right. I mean, people are surprised, but I'm not the only guy who do, does it. I mean, look, you know, Zoho's done it, Freshdesk has done it, a bunch of other guys have done it that have kind of created a, 
a reasonably good go-to-market function out of uh, remotely. And I think it's going to be done. I mean, obviously, I mean, I think it all, a lot of it depends upon people. The, the right, I mean, I have a kick-ass team right now. And, and the leaders on the team are absolutely, I mean, they absolutely crush it. And anybody who's done any business will tell you, like, it's all about the people. And literally, it's only about the people. It's like, you find the right guy, and it doesn't even matter where the hell he is. He can make it happen. It can make it happen. That's it. So I'm super blessed from that perspective. There's, you know, the couple of guys that run the, the run the sales team and the account team in India, and they just simply put badasses and they come in and they crush it and they kind of get things done. And, and that, that has been a huge boom for me. Before we dive into our next topic, here's a brief message from our sponsor. For brands looking to hear the voice of the customer loud and clear, there's no better partner than Paradigm Sample. Looking for direct access to engaged respondents and free survey programming and hosting? Let's get specific. Need to survey moms, pet owners, or customers with particular automotive loyalties? Our panel access and MR operations services can handle it all. Whether local, regional, or global, our team is ready to source the right respondents and get your survey in and out of field on time and within budget. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Let me ask you, because you're from India, did any of the people that you have in your India team are people that you knew from your past? Or did you just recruit people for the function and, you know, got them set up in India? Yeah, good question. I think the way it started off, I mean, like all good things, like it started off like a guy who went to school with me at BYU went back to India. Right. He called me back and we, and it was literally, it was me and Kevin, my buddy, who were, uh, were running the company in Seattle. And like, we were like, okay, we need somebody to do some support work, really stupid. Right. And so I'm like, I was doing all the support work. Like, I'll, you know, you do everything. Like, when you start a company, you do everything. You know, you, you're the janitor, you're doing support. So that's why people say, I can't support his heart. Like, shut up, dude, I've done it. So, and, and it's hard. I get it. And we done. Right. And so, yeah. So he called me back. The genesis was he called me and said, like, hey, I'm going to go work for this random ass company, do some random shit. I'm like, dude, don't work for them. Like, why don't we work together and kind of get this thing? And one thing led to the other. And then he started doing support. Then he started doing engineering. And then we found an amazing guy who can do you know, we can do some of the sales functions and then it just organically grew really from that perspective. So it was not like we kind of said like, oh, we want to go to India and build up this team. It was more like, hey, let us kind of like just do support out of India. And then we are always reevaluating how we operate, how we function. Sure. And then that sense of experimentation and rethinking that has helped kind of evolve ourselves into where we are today. That makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about a topic that's been really in the news lately outside of COVID, and that is this whole notion of diversity and, you know, Black Lives Matters and Brown Matters. And I don't know if you've gotten a ton of questions related to this, but I know I have. Do you have an opinion or thoughts about what's going on today as it relates to, you know, it's almost like the U.S. is waking up to the fact that we don't have diversity in many top levels of organizations and institutions. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have an opinion on it. I mean, I've been, I sent an email to the company, like, you know, obviously I've experienced America in a different way as an immigrant, really, clearly, right? I mean, I, I came here when I was you know, 19 years old, 20 years old, and I wasn't born here, I wasn't brought up here. So I, I experienced America as an immigrant, I went through the whole, you know, you, you probably know it, you know, H-1B visa, all the whole bullshit around immigration, really. So, so I have a kind of like a, definitely a kind of a, personal viewpoint on immigration and or the lack thereof or kind of the opaqueness around it is kind of super annoying to me, at least for personally. Mm-hmm. And then 
this was kind of like an extension of that in my mind. This is like, you know, to some extent it's like an extension and also it's kind of like very different also, like, you know, Black Lives Matter is at least like, in one way I'm happy, like, okay, everybody's kind of donned the fact that like, you know what, shit, we, you know, just because we elected a black president, that doesn't mean it's gone. It's actually like- It's all done. Yeah, I mean, that was the kind of narrative. Think about it back in 2010, the narrative was like, hey, look, we elected a black president and so we're done, we won. Yeah. Yeah, high five, mic drop and move on. Like, we clearly no. And then this systemic kind of subjugation, you know, on the basis of a lot of things, you know, you know, just basis of, you know, race and color as well as immigration. And all there's so much you can make the same argument around immigration also really right? i mean like there's definitely a subjugation of immigrants immigrants rights i'm passionate about that also like immigrants right immigrants have very rights in this country they kind of pay taxes everybody complains that they don't pay taxes but actually they do you know they they are you know in the w2 in your w2 income the taxes are taken away even though your social security they may be using you know false social security numbers but that doesn't stop the irs from taking the money <laughs> so it's not like they can oh, we found the process, here's the money back. And no, they don't give the money back. They keep the money. So to say that, you know, people are not subjugated here, it's kind of fundamentally not true. But again, my hope is and my goal is and to kind of somehow influence behavior. We've kind of internally, as a company, we've embraced diversity. You know, we are probably one of the worst companies in this, you know, that I know of, partly because we've expanded globally. You know, fundamentally, we like, look, we're going to have, yeah, we have a team in Germany, we have Dubai, India, here, Latin America. We have a huge in uh, Mexico that sells into Latin America. And so we are, you know, you know, we, we've, you know, that has helped kind of the entire company be kind of agnostic of any kind of racial undertones, frankly, right? So that has helped quite a bit as a company. And then within the, even within our management team, we've had, you know, we, you know obviously I don't mean I give a shit about growing the company. I don't look at whether you're black, brown, green, or blue. I don't give a shit, frankly. Help me make money on your end. And even like, you know, even diversity from the perspective of, Gender, we've had a great sales leader out of Dubai. She runs she, she runs a Dubai office, right? I mean, we don't say like, oh, you know, you're a girl, so you cannot run the Dubai office. Like, who cares? I mean, she's smart, she's good, and she's like, oh my God, you're going to crush it. In fact, you know, just here, here's the thing. Go sell more. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. And that has worked really well. I mean, I'm very proud of it. Honestly, I'm very proud of the fact that we built a company that is completely independent of kind of, you know, who you are. It's just a matter of getting getting opportunity and, you know, and hustling and selling and, you know, having a great time together. And so that has been, within Question Pro, we are pretty happy about that. Clearly, outside, outside of Question Pro, there's a lot needs to be done and a lot needs to be kind of thought through. 100%. That's part and parcel of what we do as a society. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to switch gears. Let's talk about the future of data. And, you know, we continue to hear about a lot of digital data that's being grabbed and scrubbed and kind of collated to inform behaviors and decisions for marketers. How do you view the future of that as it relates to your business? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like you know, a lot of people back even 10 years ago came and told like, oh, surveys are dead. Yeah. I mean, if you remember, yeah, surveys, I mean, people have been telling me for the last 15 years, surveys are dead, really, right? It's like every three years that happens. Yeah. The point I usually say is like, look, we are in the business of trying to figure out, I know, Attitudes. How do you measure attitudes? Right. There's a lot of tools that can measure behavior. Like you know, everything you do across the planet is kind of tracked, measured, analyzed, updated. You know, you can do that realistically. But the fundamental problem. That's why. I mean, that's you can see the growth for us, for Qualtrics, for SurveyMonkey. All of us have grown, primarily because there are literally like only two companies on the planet that can infer intent from behavior, and that is Amazon and probably Google. That's it. Right? They can look at everything and say like. You know, we know that you did A, B, C, and D. Do we know why? 
And that leap from intent to kind of behavior, you need a lot of data scientists. You need a lot of data to actually even do that, simply put, reliably do that. And what everybody's kind of realized is that actually equally 200 times easier to just simply ask and say like, hey, well or not. And case in point is a company like Uber, for example. I mean, their entire system is based off that five-point rating scale between the driver and the passenger, all right? They collect a ton of data, but they anchor on that five-point, you know, hey, did you give me a five-star? Did you give me a four-star? Did you give me a three-star, right? And that matters, right? That simple thing. I mean, you can call it a survey. You can call it a rating scale. I don't remember what we all call it. It doesn't really matter. Boom. Exactly. So even a company like Uber that was born in, you know, born in 2011, 2012 has kind of used kind of data as an anchor point. And the data necessarily doesn't have to be like behavioral data or digital exhaust and all the stuff that we talk about. It's literally straight to choice data. Like, look, do you think this is a good thing or a bad thing in the story? And the way, and obviously they've innovated. Obviously, I'm not minimizing it. Now, obviously, they've innovated. It's in line. It's part of the process. They've removed the friction, obviously, if you think about it. Remove the friction from like, oh, it's not from some stupid survey that comes out like, you know, 17 days later after you took the rent. Out of nowhere. Right. Exactly. But the underlying concept, going back to your point, like data. So that data point, even a company like Uber uses it today, realistically, to make a decision. Or, you know, should you get more rides or should you get less rides? Or should the dry passenger or the, dry, should the driver get more compensation. I mean, obviously, they kind of use that as the anchor point to determine even compensation to the drivers, right? And, and a lot of people have done a lot of things like that. So going back to your kind of original point, like, where do I see the future of data? My, my opinion is that like the, the merging of material data, we will continue to go down this process of, you know, making it frictionless, really, right? To, 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 out a way, I mean, whether it's it's an inbuilt survey or micro survey or process, you know, where you're collecting data as part of your application, and there is some data points that you're collecting, that is going to continue on. Whether they do it, you know, through us, through somebody else, through another set of systems, but that's kind of irrelevant. But that process of understanding how people think, even today, is you know, asking people what they think is probably the easiest and the fastest and the most cost-effective way to do that. So I don't believe that that is going to change. Now, the process by which we do that will evolve to reduce friction, obviously. To say like, hey, we don't want to do it the way we did it yesterday. We want to do it a little bit little bit more in-app, intrinsic. Those are the easy ones. But I believe that you know, the, we don't see a future where we say, like, we don't want to look at attitudes at all. We only want to look at behavior and make all our decisions based on inference from behavior realistically. We want to merge the attitudinal data with the behavioral data, and then that powers our decision-making capacity. Uh, So that's at least my viewpoint. Obviously, slightly biased, but I mean, that's my viewpoint. Well, no, you know what I think? I agree with you. I think the difference in the survey world will be what you just pointed out, and I think it rocks a lot of traditional market researchers in that the way we survey people might be different. It might be more integrated into business process. It might be broken up in pieces. I mean, we keep talking about this, but in the core research area, we're starting to see some of it, but if we don't adapt per se, then it's going to be integrated either way, like in an Uber or another you know, delivery company. They're going to collect that information either way. It's just a matter of who does it. And I strongly believe in like a frictionless kind of like the more frictionless fluid things are, the 
there it is for the consumer and there there's more data to be collected and there are better models for collecting data also like you know i see a lot of kind of like interest again in like you know not just going after simplistic models you know a little bit more complex models like conjoint and maxdiff and like that like okay like we want a lot of companies want to want to kind of think about it. in fact i was trying to delight canada and they came up with a very brilliant idea they're doing risk management like nothing to do with surveys or research right they're, they're a bunch of risk management you know simple you know enterprise consulting for risk management but they had a list of items before that they wanted to present to the executive team and say like okay these are the list of 20 or 30 items that are that we believe we've done the analysis that we believe like you know within the business you know propose you know pose a set of risks for you guys why don't you guys use a master's modeling on this to determine which ones are really good and which ones are really bad, which ones we need to take action on, which ones we can kind of pump the ball on, right? So even you have people like these who are not, traditionally, this is like so left field. This is not even market research. This is just like organizing a list of items, honestly, right? But when we see scenarios like this kind of unfolding where we're like, we are using a bunch of like risk analysts using a massive model, which is typically done for price modeling and price sensitivity, as well as kind of reach adoption. Now they're using this Kind of model onto a totally different application, you know, totally different space. Like to me, that these are like very kind of very positive signs. Like, okay, people are using more kind of complex models to make you know, smarter decisions. Simply put, and I think and that's you know eventually, I mean, they could have done simple like, hey, choose two items and kind of do something like that. But they said like, no, 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 we're not going to do a some simple kind of like you know choose top three or two, choose top two. We are actually going to you know apply a more complex model because you know we only have fifteen XX. So we want the collective insights of these twenty executives who have to determine the risk analysis on these fifteen profiles, if you will. That was to me was that was like, okay, great. These guys are like really. I mean. I wouldn't say like we are innovating. It's like our customers are innovating, really, in this kind of place. Like we are just enabling them. Our customers are coming up and saying like this is we can apply this model in a totally different context. That's a good example. Okay, so you facilitate, you enable clients to ask questions. I have two questions for you. If you could ask any question of consumers, what would it be? That's my first question for you. Of consumers? Yeah. I want to know what's the next toilet paper. I want to invest in that. <laughs> I love that. That's good. I want to know what's going to fly off the shelf. Like, I want to, like, you know what? If I could only predict the TP problem in America, I mean, <laughs> shit, I don't need any private equity, guys. I just make a ton of money myself. Oh, that's good. I love that. Okay. And then my second question is, if you could ask other CEOs a question, what would it be? Other CEOs a question. I mean, I guess I struggle with... When to call it quits? A lot of projects, right? You, you kind of grind it out. You got to like stay on it. And at some point, you got to make a decision. Like, do we still grind this out or do we bail on it? Right? Some version there, really, right? So I think all of us have this kind of like, especially in business, like, it's like you know, ah, shit, if we had just stayed on it for maybe six more months, it would have been good. Or like, shit, man, we've been on it for like three years. Got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> some version of that, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so... I don't know. I'm not come up. I mean, I wish I, I'm trying to like being the analytical guy that I am. Like, can I come up with some process or some around like, okay, we tried this for this many times, and after that's it. I'm simply I'm simplifying it. Sometimes you try it, it doesn't work. Get out of here, right? So something to that effect. So, if I could like learn from other guys, 
like, no, we ground it out and then it worked. And, oh, we bailed and we bailed. And frankly, we've invested in something else and that's better. And so what was the decision criteria? What was the thinking process? I don't have a clear, clear answer. Like, that's something that I would like to learn a lot. Like, that's what you would want to ask. Yeah. yeah like, well, what can you think about that helps you make that, you know, stay the course or bail <laughs> decision, which is kind of most CEOs have to make that decision all day long, one way or the other, in, across a different you know, variety of kind of things, really. So that's kind of, that's my answer. That's great. I love it. Awesome. Vivek, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I love your energy. Yeah, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.